Broadcasting from beautiful sex. Ah, you know the rest. We're in Studio City, California. This is the Knapsack Files. I'm Ken Knapsack, broadcasting live to tape in the luxurious Knapsack Files studios. And I have a very special guest today. You always have a special guest. All right, this guy ain't that great. Yeah. Yeah, it is Mr. Tim Powers. Hi. Uh, so happy you could be here, Tim. Thank you. I'm I'm glad to be here. I have wanted to be here for a while. And uh, oh, have you coveted a spot here? I have coveted a spot actually. <laughs> when you when you initiated the program in the first place, I'm like, God, I gotta get over there and do this show. And uh, our both of our schedules pretty much stink. So Bo- both of them do. I should have had you on very early on because you could have kind of uh, smoothed out some of the technical problems I had sooner. Oh, like I just did. Like you just did for okay. the uh, this this. Was session has actually been going for 45 minutes. <laughs> Tim has been working on uh, bringing better sound quality here to the Knapsack Files, and I'm excited for the future with well, you Well, once I replace those reel-to-reel tapes that you were sending to Apple <laughs> to get on the, uh, the iTunes feed. <laughs> Just send in cassette tapes. Yeah. Please post iTunes yes. <laughs> it's what I've Big old Sertron C60 cassettes is what is what you were using. Tim Powers is a writer, comedian, broadcaster, former radio personality, uh, a podcaster, and a podcasting personality. You are part of the comic book media, as I choose yes. to coin it. Okay, I'll call. I'll take that. The comic book media, which is a growing media, really. Um, and uh, we met doing stand-up comedy. We did. Uh, years ago, I'm trying to remember the first time I remember your big Fred Flintstone-like head. <laughs> Thank you so much. It had to be around 0405. Yeah, I think it was um, either either the Room Five Days or uh, or the uh, Hollywood Improv. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and doing uh, Mark Franco's shows mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, you and I struggling to uh, reach an audience with the same type of uh, "woe is me" material. Yep, but uh, we you were had... far funnier. I, I will give you that. You're, no, yeah. Well, because... you're just kind. You're just being kind because I provided you water in a Simpsons class. That's very true. Um, I, in fact, there were times I thought you actually hated yourself more than I hate myself. So that that made you funnier. Probably true. Yeah. Well, we share a mutual love of depression. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> I think I think we were kind of we were like neck and neck for I I think the other guys had a Deadpool on us actually <laughs> might be I'd have to ask uh, Harloff Connolly and Santini and the boys <laughs> was there a betting pool on who would kill themselves first Powers or, or Napsuck well, we have come through that uh, at least I have yeah I know you have I have you're in a much better spot than I uh, knew you early on not that I knew you as a bad depressed uh, guy but, yeah you did yeah well okay yeah. It's okay. Blow up the spot. Well, it's, yeah, it was. Uh, I I was in I was in really crappy shape. You and I have had had uh-huh. long conversations about yeah. uh, about each other's uh, crappy situations, and uh, here we are, a couple years later, and yeah. uh, and and things are things are all right. Yeah, as as uh, our old friends Wilson Phillips sing, "Hold on for one more day." This is a lesson. I'm bringing that back. Call back to a, a show of a bygone era. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's good to see where you are now. Thank it's good you. to come over to your house and see your your lovely, beautiful bride making the best homemade sandwiches in the in the, the fact that I even LA have area. a lovely bride is is right. pretty remarkable, really, because my my beta marriage did not go well. <laughs> you had a starter. I had starter a starter marriage. marriage yeah, it a did, long time ago though. Long time ago. Yeah, I got married very young. Uh, mm-hmm. From I was married from nineteen ninety, I think, to about ninety seven, uh-huh. and then from ninety seven to about oh eight. Mm-hmm. Um, I was uh, I I almost died of dissipation. <laughs> <laughs> 
and then now you here you are with with a beautiful bride mm-hmm. and a couple of lovely dogs and a, and a house mm-hmm. in a very fashionable part of the Hollywood district. That's right. I live in Hollywood, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. If you've seen Swingers, you've probably seen Tim's house. Oh, or at least the, the movie swingers, not like if you've seen a couple of chubby Midwesterners who like the wife swap. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe who knows what's going on in your neighborhood there? I don't My know. neighborhood was in Sharknado. Was your neighborhood in Sharknado? Yep. Mm-hmm. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. The movie that has swept the nation and then some. Well, and to see Robbie Wrist crushed by the Hollywood sign, really. <laughs> Cousin Oliver just takes it right in the head. It's beautiful. Now, do you feel uh, going back those years? Does, did your depression fuel your comedy, or did it did it hold it back? At some my times? depression made my comedy. Okay, and I knew that I had taken it too far one night at Room Five when <laughs> we were. I, I remember this already. vividly. We were. You probably know the night too. I, we were at Room Five, and I said, "My girlfriend's always afraid that she's that I'm cheating on her." She's, she says, "You're cheating on me. You're cheating on me." I said, no, I'm not. She said, how do I know? And I said, well, look at me. And instead of hearing laughs, I heard like four girls in the back of the room go, oh. <laughs> and then I saw Chip Darnell fall over and laugh. And I'm like, all right, I got it. When you, when you make Chip laugh, you know you've done something wrong. Because the, <laughs> the, the audience is usually not laughing. And Chip, with his wonderful sense of humor, the world should be like Chip. Yep. Uh, I've made Chip laugh many times, and that's why I'm not doing stand-up anymore. Um, but yeah, there is that point, huh, where that depression... It fuels you, but then it can kind of hold you back, I feel. And I definitely ran into that point. Yep. Early on, when you first saw me, I was doing jokes about my suicide attempts. Yeah. And you can do that and do that funny, but if you don't know how, and I was not a skilled comedian at that point, and maybe never was, but uh, I wasn't skilled enough at that point to handle it, so I was depressing the audience. And I think it was my own mother, who had never really seen me perform, but in a conversation, she was like, well, maybe the audience just wants to laugh and not be reminded <laughs> of these horrible things. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever get to that point? I did. They, uh, In fact, my mother said to me, well, you shouldn't make fun of yourself so much. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I guess, I guess maybe everybody's mother says that when when oh, they're when they're, we have, have given birth to com- well we have mothers to give us material right. Um, I I think my depression held me back to the extent that I didn't think that professionally I could go any more mm. any farther than I was. Yeah. It kept me from doing comedy contests and it kept me from taking opportunities that uh, I probably should have taken that would have advanced my uh, so, advanced the comedy career a little bit. And I kind of stayed at the level that I was at because, well, I didn't think I could do any better right. than this little room where people drink coffee and ignore me. <laughs> well, you were AA meetings doing comedy? That might have been your problem. Um, <laughs> me, well, and, me and Tracy McDonald. How much was it in your head then compared to reality? That's, that's, that's a good point. You know, it's nice that sometimes you, we all professionally should know our limitations, maybe, or be, have a realistic view of what we're capable of. But then there's what you're describing is you thought you couldn't do it, maybe you maybe you could have. That's the fundamental. That's that's the foundation of depression is complete distortion yeah. of any kind of reality. You know. Yeah. I mean, we hung out uh, with a with a core group of comics. Yeah. Right. Who were. In addition to being competitive mm-hmm. and wanting to up one another, we're really pretty supportive. Yeah, absolutely. you know, I think I mean any of those guys that we hung out with when we were when we were rolling, you know, and, and doing stand up three four times a week, rolling deep, um, you know, would have done anything for any of us. Yeah. You know, if I'd have gotten a call from any of those guys and they're like, "Hey, I need help moving," I, you know, more than yeah. likely I would probably help them out. But the perception at the time was, "I'm not really one of them. I don't really want to." Right. You know, but I kept coming back. 
Right. And I just have this skewed perception of uh, of my place. Um, and I think you ran into this, too. I watched mm-hmm. my friends mm-hmm. that started right at the same level as me or below me just skyrocket <laughs> to the point where some of them are TV stars now. Yes. You know, and I'm like, oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, I, I, it's tough for me sometimes to sit in uh, here live from New York. It's Saturday night. Oh, I knew five of those people. Yep. Yeah. Um, I asked yeah. Eliza one night. I said, "How do you got some great breaks. How do I get the same breaks as you? She said, grow tits, which I thought was horrible advice because Eliza and I are the same cup size. Well, I don't know. You're you're taking some boxing training now. <laughs> that's true. Maybe you're going the reverse direction. Well, that, that, well, there's some truth to that. But uh, yeah, that's and, I, and I'm not begrudging anybody their success. No. Everybody I know who's really made it mm-hmm. really deserves it. Really, I mean, everybody yeah. has worked really hard. There's nobody. I'm like, oh well, how did they make it? They're crappy. Yeah, well, you yeah, absolutely, I agree with you. And and and, and there's probably some points in my life where I would begrudge some of these people. And I I came to a point, and Joey Rockenstein would talk, and I would talk about this a lot, where it's like, what's the point in that? Why are we begrudging someone else who had got an opportunity? That means there's there's more for other people coming if you work for mm-hmm. it. And yeah, you're right. Very rarely, maybe I don't find a lot of these people as funny as maybe a middle America does, uh, or you know maybe I I didn't wouldn't, they wouldn't get a Christmas card from me. But they all worked hard for it. And they all put themselves out, and even despite their own depression, never had those moments, at least uh, never stopped them from from doing things. They never had those moments of, uh, well, I shouldn't do it. They went and did it. They went and did it. And, uh, I mean, if you peel back the onion on any real comedian, any comic who's really just got the funny bones, you're going to find a messed up, tortured Mm-hmm. borderline mentally ill human being, every single one of us, because no, no one in their right mind would put themselves on stage as an object of ridicule <laughs> without some sort of pathology. And yeah. I mean, if you, I mean, you go all the way back to, to, you know, uh, Chaplin, you know, mm-hmm. Chaplin's, Chaplin's childhood was horrible. Yeah. The, you know, the, a lot of the great comedians came out of the depression um, you know, Buster Keaton's family worked in uh, abuse in his in in their they worked child abuse into their act. You know, <laughs> just, just horrible lives. And then you know, yeah. our generation where you know Jim Norton had a horrible, horrible life. Yeah. Um, Louis Anderson's childhood is is mm-hmm. you know ripe with horrible things. Um, Maria Bamford, who's yeah. hilarious, just yeah. has the most messed up life you can imagine. Yeah, I saw one of her one woman shows once she was doing. It was a basically basically a pilot presentation. She had a TV show basically, and it was in a one woman stage form. Right, genius work, genius work, and all these characters that are her mother or her or sister, sister and yeah. all that kind of stuff. It's all you kind of get the sense that it's all in her head, real. Like it's all it's like you're watching almost different yeah. personalities perform. Uh, and that comes from a, maybe a scary point. It that know? all comes from a very scary point. Prior, you yeah. know, Prior's childhood was awful. He yeah. grew up in a bordello in uh, in Peoria, Illinois, you know, yeah. which was a predominantly white city. It's why his his racial stuff was so so incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, did did you have did you have a bad childhood? I had a great childhood. That- I had uh, I had a pretty typical Midwestern mm-hmm. uh, childhood. There are scars like anybody else's. Mm-hmm. But I, it, it, and it could have been a hell of a lot worse. Yeah. You know, 
Um, I think the worst of it was kind of in my head, and a lot of it was a result of a of a very Roman Catholic upbringing. Mm. Yeah, where I was made to feel guilty for every single thing that I did. So I don't blame, including your good looks. Well, yeah, there's that. Um, in fact, I washed my face with gravel lest I be a temptation <laughs> to others. Um, my parents, I, my first of all, my dad is a hilarious guy. He's just okay. a funny guy. Uh, my mom has no sense of humor whatsoever, mm. which egged me on tremendously. I come from an enormous family where there are a lot of very loud and and boisterous people who, uh, if you peel back the onion, there's some there's some stuff there, and everybody's got it. And I'm yeah. I'm kind of the baby of that line, mm. and mm. I learned to be funny to keep from getting the shit kicked out of me. Wow. So. It's, it's it is a good defense tool. It's a great defense tool, and uh, bullying probably started a lot of stand up careers. You know what? I'll bet I'll bet it did. Mm-hmm. I'll bet it did. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it just it's something that that worked for me. It uh, developed for me. And when I came to Hollywood, I had a uh, uh, I met a, a fellow who was the producer of uh, Gilligan's Island and the Dobie Gillis Show and Flipper. Really, and his name was uh, Stanley Zach Cherry. Mm-hmm. You can look him up on IMDb, and he used to write for Burns and Allen. Yeah, and I mean the guy was great, and he was. He, I mean, you had me at Gilligan's Island, one of my all-time favorite shows. There he, you go. Say no more there. And uh, he's like, oh, that Bob Denver, he would have been great, but he was an alcoholic. And he said to me, he said, you know, yeah, Tim, people got it, and people don't got it. And right. Tim, you got funny bones. It's just in you. You just right. have funny in your bones. And I've taken that with me. You know, okay. it's like, well, even if I have nothing else, yeah. I have nothing else. If I am, am broke, I'm out of work, I have nothing else, at least, you know, I can do a pratfall and a funny face and, and make somebody laugh. Make somebody laugh, make somebody feel happy. Yeah. It is a gift. If, if I can't have it, you ought to have it. You have that. And, and yeah, that is a lot of the case. I, I, like I said, I had a great childhood. I have no no real major issues with my childhood. Uh, but at some point, I pinpoint around sixth grade, it just all turned inward where I just hated myself. And it's built from there. Girls. Yeah. <laughs> no, quite frankly. Quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, the, you know, pop girls, et cetera, man. Pop girls, et cetera. It's, yeah, when, when in first grade, I remember having a crush on a girl I had no chance with. First grade. And, and I was aware of that problem. By seventh grade, I Am a Rock by Simon and Garfunkel was my favorite song. There you go. What's wrong with me? I was uh, in, about the time I discovered girls, mm-hmm. I was in a Catholic school where there were 34 girls and 12 boys in the class. So you'd figure my odds are pretty good. Good odds. But I was convinced, for whatever reason, I don't know how this programming got in my head, but I was convinced every single woman in the school, in the building, on the planet, just had this instinctual disdain for me. Yeah. Just convinced. Totally relate to that. That they, that, no. I mean, I couldn't talk, wouldn't, couldn't talk to him. Just hated me. Just thought yeah. I was an thought I was an idiot. You know, anything that came out of my mouth was repulsive. I just I looked like the swamp thing, you know. And I was just a typical twelve year old kid, you know. Right. But I told, no, I totally identify with that. Uh, going through, um, especially six, by sixth grade is is what, when you kind of become who you are. I think you know. Yeah. And and um, seventh eighth grade, and I you know. 
I probably had girls that were interested in me. I didn't notice it. I had one friend, uh, my friend Chris McNeil from San Francisco, lives up there now, but he came down to visit me when I did Hollywood Improv. It was about 2005, and I was in the height of that, uh, oh, just never, I'll never, I'll never be loved. And, yeah. never, and he slammed down his drink and is like, bullshit. Bullshit! I was there in high school, and he started rattling off all these girls. They, they, th- she thought you're cute. They, you could have asked her out. You could have done that. You just held on to this, 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 this perception, this perception, right? and you held. You went after dream girls that you know you wouldn't want anyways because they're boring and dull. You, it, I, and he went the other. We had parted ways in ninth grade, and he was right. like, "Why do you think I, I stopped hanging out with you?" And I was like, "I, good question. I've always wanted to know." He's like, "Because I wanted to talk to girls." <laughs> And wow. he did and went off to a much more, you know, normal uh, young adult normal life development where I had, was very uh, had a retarded growth in, the, in my early 20s, emotion, emotional growth and mm-hmm. had to work through a lot of things. I'm happy where I am now, but it all does come back but to you girls. And I have, have grown up together as well. And, uh, yeah. you know, we've seen each other through some pretty hard uh, romantic times as well. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, there are times we've had to remind each other, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's Hollywood. Women are crazy. And, you know, yeah. you just, yeah. you know. and uh, how 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 has marriage uh, bolstered your career? Co- comedically? Comedically. Yeah. Well, not just not just talking Destroyed about uh, it, my, to my be wife. perfectly honest. I, I love my wife. I absolutely do. Yeah. But uh, and I think it's a combination of marriage and age. Okay. Because uh, I am this year forty-four years old. Okay. Uh, I have a uh, I have a day job that's pretty corporate and yeah. pretty intense. Me too. Yeah. And uh, a wife and two puppies to take care of. So I can't. I could go out four nights a week and do you know open mics and stand up and, right. and things like that, but I choose not to. So mm-hmm. I pick and choose my my gigs very carefully. Yeah. Um, and so I don't get the practice. You know as well as I do. You need to be out there and yeah. hitting it and bumping it. And I'm not writing as much as I used to. I'm not performing as much as I used to. And some of our best bits, you and me both, mm. came to us on stage. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. And so if you're not up there and you're not doing it, um, you 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 don't have the uh, uh, you don't have the force that you used to. The momentum. The, the, that yeah, that I used to. Um, now I've tried to take it in other directions and tried to write. Uh, recorded material, right. and uh, and now I'm working with a group called Comics and Comics, where we're a group of comic book nerds mm-hmm. who do stand-up shows at comic book stores, like in Ventura County. And we've been uh, we've done various comics conventions, and we did Anime Expo here in LA, and just right. tore it up. It was great. Mm. Um, but and, and that's kind of my brand right now is you know I'm the chubby 44 year old <laughs> guy that reads Superman and can make jokes about comics from the 40s. Uh, and, and, and it works. And, and movies and music for the 40s. You are a treasure trove <laughs> of ancient entertainment. Yeah, I suppose I am. I'm um, the. Uh, th- th- so that's become kind of your, your, your marketable brand then, no? Huh? It is now. Yeah. It, it could be something different in five years. I don't know. But uh, And there are times that I miss it and times that I'm really glad that I have what I have, which is... Yeah. The the security of, of having a home to go to and a woman who makes these awesome sandwiches who Amazing. looks at me with the adoration that I was looking for in an audience. Ah, oh, deep. Yeah. Tim Powers goes deep. Plus, she thinks I'm hilarious. Really? Yeah, believe it or not. She's not tired of my material <laughs> yet. But um, you know what? To her credit, she's pretty funny, too. 
Yeah, she's no. really sharp. Uh, Kelly is good, great, uh, kind of brassy she personality. She adores you too. By oh well, the way. I adore her, and I'm so happy to see what she's done to you. That makes me adore her more. It's a base level of adoration. Then get to you know be around her and get to know her, and she she's funny and yeah. she has that wry sense of humor. Plus, uh, sandwiches are my favorite food <laughs> in the world. And the first time I was really over there, she's like, hey, "You're like, hey, Kelly, will make a sandwich." I'm like, "Oh, sure, I'll have a all oh, this sandwich." Blew my mind. Yep. And I got to get back to have another one. It had apple slices and stuff oh, in it. It, was, it, had, oh. it had a, it had a, uh, just a flavor. It was a flavor, bountiful. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm losing the words. To this. I'm hungry again. Well, yeah, and mm. you're salivating all over your equipment. Yeah, so that's, that's not uh, good. Oh, that's not good. Um, but you so, so yeah, you kind of touched on something. Um, and it's not that I I know people who are very successful, continuing to work in comedy, who are married and have kids. Right. But I've always struggled with the notion. Every time I've been in a serious relationship, the first thing that to, to go was stand-up comedy. Yep. And I didn't even realize it until the second time it happened. Did you ever date this girl who's like, I'd love to come to see your show, but you do the same jokes every week. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, she didn't do that per se, but she stopped showing up. And I told her, it's okay. This is kind of my job. You don't have to come to work with me every day. Yeah. Um, and that's a lot of women don't understand that. They think it's great that you're funny on stage for those 10 minutes they see you. They don't understand the work that goes into it. Nope. Um, but, yeah, I just found that I... Um, <laughs> Can't did... you just make it up when you grab the microphone? <laughs> no! I tried no! that, and it didn't work. Um, yeah, but I always found it just seemed... And, and so you kind of kind of said it there, where it's like, well, you found the, the adoration from her that you were looking for in an audience or women in general. Yep, that's true. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, there mm-hmm. is nothing... Like, just nailing a joke. And, yeah. I mean, just being punched in the face by the laughter of an entire yeah. room full of people. You know, when you just when you just nail a joke and you weren't expecting it to go over that great. Yeah. And the, the force of the laugh literally pushes you over. I mean, <laughs> there's no greater feeling when you come off the stage. Yeah. Main, it is a drug. Main stage at the, at the comedy store. I mm. was, like, comic number 85 <laughs> in the night. You know? What year was this? Oh, shit. Oh, maybe oh eight, maybe oh seven. Oh yeah, definitely gotcha. And uh, like you people think you've been here a long time. There's a lady in the back of the room still waiting for Freddie Prince, <laughs> <laughs> and the room just fell apart. And I'm like, oh, I'm so proud of that joke. And then that just came to you, yeah, on the fly. Yep. What were some of your uh, greater moments and greater shows? Uh, let's see. The, I, you know, I was at the store uh, the night before Chris Rock hosted the Oscars. And I was at the Improv a week before when he was tapping his sets. That's funny. So, yeah. And, well, a couple blocks away. So yeah. I put the mic in the holder, and I walked back behind the curtain, and there's these you know, two big black boxer guys and this little skinny black guy pacing back and forth. Right. And we pass each other. Yeah. Right? And... Uh, and then I hear whoever was hosting go, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest for you. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Rock. And I turn around, and there he, there he there was. was. Right. He just walked right past me. And I got to watch Chris Rock from the wings. Right. 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 Um, I was at the Improv. You were there that yeah. night when uh, Louis C.K. dropped in the night before his very first Tonight Show. Um, no, and, I was not there for that one. No. No, 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 no. no. I've never seen C.K. Never, okay. never, never, never. I was there for Chris Rock, Michael Richards. Norton. I know you were there I was, for Norton. I brought up Norton. You brought up Norton. I brought up Norton, yeah. I remember watching Norton. <laughs> He's an intimidating fellow. And I, I went up to him and I said, hey, a he, nice guy. But I went up and said, hey, what do you want for your intro? And he's like, nothing. I don't care. Nothing. <laughs> don't say anything. And so I go up there. All right. So I, I said, uh, this next performer, you may have uh, seen him or not. 
Jim Norton, and I just remember he's going to punch me. He's going to punch me. He's going to punch me. <laughs> you just say, thank you, idiot. You know, didn't yeah. say that, but he had that feel. But, um, yeah, okay, anyway, sorry, sidetrack your story. No, 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 that was, the, I remember that night. Yeah. I remember that night, and I remember just watching Norton going, this is the voice of the future. This oh, guy, I if I could be as honest, if I could take my self-loathing and be as honest and just yes. as 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 funny as him. Yeah. You know, proof that you can take the self-deprecation and the self-loathing and you can mold it into something grand because every... CK as well. Yes. Uh, Mark Maron's my favorite storyteller and he takes what's stirring in his soul and puts it out there. But you have to do it right. We come from a generation of people who intrinsically hate themselves, a large, <laughs> uh, in large part due yeah. to Madison Avenue. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, we all grew up with cable TV flashing up uh, images about how inferior our lives are. Right. And you and I live in a city where everybody is inferior to everybody else all the time. Right. Constantly. No matter how successful you are, there's always somebody better than you. Someone better than you. And somebody, and then, and you know, in my hometown, it's like you'd say, oh, real women don't exist like that. Then you come to Hollywood. Oh, no, they all live here because they're here trying to get jobs in the, in the, yeah. in the industry. Those women you see on TV, they're all here and they're all crazy and they're all unattainable. Oh, they're all insane. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. That's, a, that's another reason I'm glad Kelly's here because yeah. she's uh, she's not as insane as the rest of them. No, that's the key. Find one just a little less insane than you, right? <laughs> and I did. You did. I did. The um, first one was way more insane than I. I yeah, see, know out of balance. I was 20. Yeah. Out of balance. Um, Her husband sat me down one day and he's like, "Why didn't you tell me?" <laughs> I said, because I was still married to her, and I figured you got what you deserve. <laughs> <laughs> figured it all come around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, watching guys like Norton there and CK, yeah, I I, uh, I remember that night specifically. Um, even I, even Lou, really, yeah. works that that uh, self-hatred yeah. logo uh, yeah. uh, angle. Yeah, you have to, again, it has to turn into a profession. And I think I see too many young comics, and that's part of the reason, you know, I hosted a lot of those shows back in that day. Right. Uh, and uh, I used to always laugh because Santini and Connolly and Harloff and those guys could get to tell their jokes and go downstairs and flirt with the girls and have fun. I had to stay up and listen to every set because <laughs> I had to come, hey, and that guy was very funny. You've seen him at colleges, and he was a horrible rookie learning the craft. But, mm-hmm. yeah, you'd see so many people go up to the stage and use it as a therapy session. And that's not how you do it. That's not, it's not entertaining. Right. And that's what they would get hung up on. Yeah, comics don't really realize that uh, you need material. You can't just go up and go, hey, remember the candy dots? Yeah. Huh? Eh? Yeah? Dots? No. No. How about how about the, the the cola bottles? The wax cola bottles? You'd bite the... That's an actual set that I watched a guy do one time. <laughs> just started just, running through things. Hey, that, remember... Anyone, anyone know this? Bit of honey? Anybody remember bit of honey? Oh man! See, so you can make candy references work when you mention, say, a Werther's original candy. That's right, my finest punchline. One of them. That is not your finest punchline, but it is way up there. It is way, way. Uh, thank up you. There. I appreciate that. Um, one of those jokes that made me happy to do comedy. Yeah. Did you? Did you ever had those moments where you struggle through, and then you find it, and you sometimes you find it on stage, and you're yep. like, it's like that golf shot that brings it back next week. You may have your driving was horrible, your short game, but you hit that one twenty-five yard putt. Where you're like, I'm coming back. I remember the the when the when the lifetime joke came to me, where I do the bit about the the lifetime oh, yeah. TV movie, where the announcer goes, "He was a doctor and an attorney and a cowboy." And uh, I remember when that came to me, and I had to write it down really fast. And I called a friend of mine. And I'm like, "Is this funny?" She's like, "Oh my god, it's hilarious!" <laughs> and uh, 
and and I mean it just it just came to me in like a, a matter of a few minutes. Right. And the first time I did it on stage and closed with it, I'm like, all right, got it, got it, awesome, got it. It's there forever. Uh, the last uh, I've told the story on on this show before, but the last stand up set I ever did in 2010. Now, um, I've been struggling to find a, a jo- an end to a joke about um, uh, sonograms and everything, and I and I finally on that night hit it. And I'm still one day I'm going to come back just for just to say that just joke to do again. That joke. Just to do that joke again. Uh, I have it written down somewhere because I can't remember it anymore. <laughs> it's uh, a friend of mine, Ed Greer, uh, doesn't doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't write his material down. He writes on stage. Wow. And so whenever I work with him, I record his sets, and I I tell him I'm not recording sets. I'm mining for gold. You're he's, you're brilliant, and yeah. and you really you need to remember this material when you come back to it. And so I always send him the audio files because I'm good like that. You're good with the audio. Yeah. You fix this one here. Uh, and you started in radio, right? I did. Uh, 1987. Uh, I started at a college station called KCLC, the experience of Lindenwood College, which is now Lindenwood University. It was a 5,000-watt FM station, the voice of St. Charles, Missouri, which was a suburb of St. Louis that kind of thought it was its own city. Right. So, it, I mean, that was the... That was the radio station. That was a community radio station. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so the local school closings and stuff like that were there. Right. It was a jazz station, but at night it became KCLC's Night Wave, <laughs> where we'd play the best. In, and it's, it's what college radio was in the 80s. Oh, know? yeah. Yeah. And That's great. We reported to CMJ, and I think mm-hmm. I was on the job about three weeks, and the... Uh, former program director for the Nightwave segment got fired for dropping the f bomb. Oh no! And I took that job and had it for about three years. Nice. Yeah, nice. it was fun. It was my. And uh, yeah, you mentioned last day. week uh, when we were prepping that you know Lou and I talked a lot about radio last week. So I certainly don't want to rehash uh, for our, our Napsack Files listeners, but I still think radio is the best medium. Um, and do you agree? Absolutely. I think that uh, in terms of immediacy mm-hmm. in terms of intimacy in terms of what it can be to the listener it yeah. is it is very very powerful in its current incarnation yeah. it's dead absolutely it's absolutely dead um there are a few stragglers holding on i mm-hmm. think uh, i mean like um coast to coast which is yeah. on the am show that's on uh midnight to six in the morning yeah on like every am station yeah. in the country yeah, yeah. it survives because it's compelling and it's good and it's intimate and it's got a relationship right. with its listeners and it doesn't alienate anybody except people who apply logic to things <laughs> um you know but talk radio is so polarized sports radio is so incredibly loud and homogenized right and music radio is dull. Yeah. Absolutely dull. I love, uh, I mean, and I love old classic rock. I could listen to the yeah. Rolling Stones all day long. Right. But if I'm, by saying that, that doesn't mean that I want to hear brown sugar 35 <laughs> times a day. Right. Right. Sometimes, sometimes eight, eight to ten times a day you'd spin the same song. There's day, a, you know. uh, an internet station called Planet Radio run by my pal Randy Rayleigh that I worked with at okay. KC95. And it is a deep classic station. I think it's completely automated. Oh, but yeah. the library is so deep that he doesn't repeat uh, hardly ever. Oh, that's and great. It's really beautiful. So Planet Radio on your LinkedIn or what? No, TuneInRadio.com, I think is where okay. you can get it. I definitely want to check that out too. Really um, tasty. Um, what uh, what what general formats did you work? Uh, I, I, well, let's see. I started. I, I did jazz. Uh, I, I did uh, a bluegrass show for a while. Nice. Oh, 
Oh, my bluegrass story. Yeah. I was uh, 18 years old working at KCLC, and the host of the bluegrass show was one of the nation's foremost authorities in bluegrass music, right? Sure. And he keeps this old guy who did Armed Forces Radio in the, in the, during World War II. And that's, I'm not making fun of him. That's exactly how he talked. All right. And he couldn't, imagine. couldn't read to save his life. Did they have a bluegrass festival down in Potosi, Missouri? It's Potosi, Glenn. It's Potosi. No, it's Potosi. Uh, and he kept talking about his friend who's, who's coming to do a live set. Right. So in the room next to me was a performance studio. So I mic'd it up and um, set it up so that there was a microphone and a chair and, and uh, you know, a place for him to, to put his mandolin and everything. Door buzzes. And uh, I put on a record. I go out, open the door. Jerry Garcia, ladies and gentlemen. Jerry, Jerry Gar- Garcia. The JGB. Was... Jer- oh, of Jerry Garcia ties? Yes. <laughs> yes, the guy with the ties. That's right. He really? invented that ice cream for Ben and Jerry's. Yes. You might have heard yes. of it. And uh, so there I am, 18 years old, just agog wow. at my first uh, first official rock god. That, Jerry uh, Garcia, what you said, so 87, 88, you said, uh-huh. around that time? Yeah. Touch of Grey had about, been about a couple years old, so they were it hit big finally for once. Yeah. With a, with a one-hit single. Wow, that's great. But he was there doing uh, doing a bluegrass show with his little bluegrass band, and he did, uh, really? he did a set right there live. That's great. You got to watch that? Mm-hmm. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful yeah. memory. Let's see what else I did. Uh, I did classical on Classic ninety nine KFUO oh, really? St. Louis's classical radio. Uh, I did. Um, did for, you get? Did you get to rock? Oh yeah, got yeah. to rock. KC ninety five St. Louis's real rock radio. The Sklar brothers do a bit about yeah. KC. You know, KC ninety five. We're going to you know whatever. We rip through your face like a you know hot chainsaw through butter. Um, and it's you know it was it was one of those quintessential rock stations. Our, yeah. our mascot was a joint smoking pig. <laughs> it's great. It it had been a rock station since 1967. Oh yeah. And I was there on their 30th anniversary. And uh, that's great. My station was just all rock all the time, uh, but I didn't uh, have that legacy. That's great. 30 years. The legacy is amazing. I mean, um, like Sammy Hagar did our TV commercials. And he was friends of the wow. owners and. You know, we were the station. Hey, the Rolling Stones are in town. We, you know, it, it was it's the rock station for for St. Louis, if not the Midwest. It's mm. a, it's a gorgeous, wonderful station, still rocking, still so if going. You're, if you're in St. Louis, ninety four point seven, Casey ninety five. How, how long did your radio career last? Your proper radio mm. career? It it ebbed and flowed, mm-hmm. and my time on the air ebbed and flowed as well. So yeah. all total, I spent time in radio from nineteen eighty seven. To about 1998, okay. but some of that time I was in sales as well. Yeah, so even did uh, religious radio for a while. Oh yeah, I did. My my best friend in college is still the program director for a little religious station in St. Louis, and he couldn't find anybody to work Sunday mornings. Yeah, I had just gone through a divorce and I was broke, and he's like, "I'll pay a hundred bucks a day to come in here and." <laughs> Punch the sermon tapes. I'm like, sold. Done. Praise so the I, Lord. I would go in and read books on Sunday morning and push the giant reel-to-reel tapes. Perfect. And that was that. So you left at 98. I left 98. Lou left 97, 98-ish. Uh, that seemed to 
be the end, not just because the three of us left, but that seemed to be the kind of end of the radio era. As Deregulation, as, man. Yeah. Deregulation. That That's it. when it became completely homogenized. Yeah. God love the, the satellite radio for, you know, bringing people like Sonny Fox and, uh, and Jim Ladd, mm-hmm. uh, Wolfman Jack when he was available, George Taylor Morris when he was still alive. Mm. Um, you know, having people like that still have an outlet where they were free to do whatever they wanted. Yeah. Um, now everything's so homogenized and, and mm. everything is programmed in one central office in one city somewhere. Yeah. And tastes are so, musical tastes, especially in rock and roll, are so um, geographically um, uh, centered. Yeah. You know, Chicago has a different beat than Detroit, has a different beat than St. Louis, has a different right. point, beat than Fort Lauderdale. Right. But you, so you can't really program them all. From, from one central place, right? You know, you got to be plugged in, man. You got to be plugged in. That's what I loved. I loved uh, crafting a, a playlist. Uh, we had, uh, we, you know, we were a reporting station, so we had our playlist and had to report the spins and everything. But right. we, we could slip in what we wanted, as long as we wrote it down, maybe, uh, you know. And you craft whatever mood you were in that day. Mm-hmm. And then, and yeah, sometimes you get people. Did you love rain days? Rain days. Oh, Central Coast rain days. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, then you, I had some people that. Um, I remember one time I was playing Out of Tears by the Rolling Stones, you right. know, um, I just was in that mood. And some guy calls me up and goes, uh, hey, man, why don't you play some real rock and roll, like the, something by the Rolling Stones? I thought he was joking. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, like, you know, just saw anything by the Rolling Stones. I'm like, how about Out of Tears by the Rolling Stones? Currently playing right now. <laughs> Currently playing on this station that you're listening. To. Oh, well, it's slow, man. Um, but yeah, you could. I love that, and, and so they could connect with you. Yep. You know, Casey has a tradition on the first snowfall. They always played. Uh, they always played. Don't eat the yellow snow during the first snowfall of the year. Right. You know, I mean, uh, I all time. kinds of local local traditions and stuff. Do you like have? And we didn't get a chance to talk about this with Lou, but Lou and I talk about this off air a lot. Do Do you have? I still have, but do you still have radio nightmares? The dream. The dreams. dreams. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I have it. I probably still have it once a week. I it, right. And okay, here's the thing. So let me set the stage for the people out there listening. Um, I will have. You know, everyone dreams, and some, most of the time you don't remember your dreams, and you wake and you have nightmares and this and that. But I regularly have reoccurring dreams where I am doing a full shift, and these dreams last for probably all eight hours of my sleep, full <laughs> radio shifts, and things are going wrong, or things aren't going wrong, or you know, you can't find the CD, or you're having a good time. Yeah, or you, can't, weird... you can't find the next cut. Yeah, always. you can't find the next cut. And I have them, and I thought I was the only one, and I thought it was because I just missed my time in radio. Then I mentioned it to my old radio partner, Matt Donovan, Matty D., and he's like, oh, I have those all the time. And then I mentioned it to Lou, who was in radio for 13 years. He's like, I still have them to this day. I had one last night. And now you're saying you have them. Oh, yeah. I, I had one just just a couple nights ago. I think uh, it was uh, – I, I couldn't find my way back. For whatever reason, I was – I had physically moved myself away right. from the booth, right. like far enough away that I couldn't get there before I had to open the mic. Right? And I knew that there was going to be like 10 minutes of dead air, and I was, oh. There is a psychological condition. Am yep. I wrong here? Because no. I, I don't have dreams about stand-up comedy. I don't have dreams about my day job. I don't have dreams about uh, uh, you know my time and travels and professional wrestling. He does have dreams about me. Yeah, that's true. That's a different kind. We're yeah. skipping, and there's a lot of music playing by the monkeys. Yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, I have them about radio still. Yeah, I do too. I can. I wish someone would analyze that. Everybody I know in radio has has had that, and it continues. Yeah, it continues. I had one maybe about a month ago. And I mean, you and I have been out of the medium 
Since uh, 1998. Yeah. I stopped. My last radio shift was in mid-January 1998. Well over 10 years. And I, yeah. you know what's probably exacerbated is what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. You know, just the, the muscle memory of sitting yeah. in front of a board with a couple of microphones and headphones. And, and headphones on. And doing what we're doing. Let's talk about that transition into podcasting and, and, and the digital world. Okay. You've made it quite well, Thank I think. Thank you. Uh, it's taken me a long time, and like I always joke uh, now, I'm like, oh, I'm doing this podcast. Have you ever heard of these things? <laughs> you know, because yeah. I'm about five years too late from getting into it, <laughs> which is par for my course. Um, I'm usually always like, ah, I don't really like that stuff. Now I own, you know, seven Macs. I used to not have any Mac <laughs> products. Oh, Macs are stupid. I, uh, you're staring at it. I have an iPad, a mm-hmm. MacBook, and two iPhones right in front of me. Yeah. So podcasting was no different. Why, why would I do podcasting? I was in radio. I was in real radio. Now I'm catching up. Uh, you, though, have been going for a while. For a while. About uh, about three years now, Sax mm-hmm. Carr and I have been doing the Fandom Planet show. Yeah. Um, which we started doing just for fun. We wanted to interview uh, friends of ours who were in the comics industry, in the sci-fi television. Right. We've had actresses on and things like that. My partner, Sax Carr, is a big hustler, and he loves to get you know good yeah. guests. And he and I just have this, this, uh, this chemistry that works. So you know, when... We used to do it pretty regularly, and then, you know, marriage. Um, <laughs> and we're just getting back on the horse, which is really nice. We right, just did right. a great interview with uh, John Bogdanov and his family, which is now available on iTunes right? under Phantom Planet. But for a while, we were also working for a company called Crave Online. Yeah. And Sax was the editor of the Comedy Channel, and he needed content. So we developed a show called This Is Really Happening, oh, which yeah, is yeah. still out there. Yeah. Uh, where we would find real news stories about horrible events that have right. happened or just like stupid people in the news and uh, and do what we do best, which is, uh, you know, rank on those shows. Right. And at, at any given time, you know, we've had, you know, several thousand downloads and we yeah. have given stuff away. We've had we've done the traditional radio thing. We've done live broadcasting from comics conventions and things like that. So right. all of everything that you could have done with radio. Minus have a ton of listeners immediately, yeah. uh, you can do with podcasting. And if yeah. you're just a narcissist like like you and yeah, I like are, me. yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, this certainly gives you the opportunity. Yeah, this ain't this ain't called the Thompson Files. No, <laughs> what? I was hoping it was the Rockford Files. I was all set to see your Mustang. I don't know, um, but I yeah, I was uh, impressed by your. Embracing uh, this uh, this little side business here, it's fun. It uh, is. That's the bottom line: is it's fun. And how, you know, how else am I going to get press credentials to go meet Stan Lee? Right. How else am I going to get you know press credentials to interview the Hudson Brothers? You know, right. just just say, hey, I got this show, and certain people listen to it. And if you've got a book to promote, I'd love to talk to you. Okay. okay. Would you like to talk to your childhood heroes? Why? Yes, I would. Yes, as a I matter would. of fact. Yes, I would. Um, yeah, through you, I, we're, I'm still looking forward to a chance to interview the uh, the guy behind all the GI Joe comic books. Oh, Larry Hammer, sure. Yeah, I'll yeah, make it yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm rereading all the GI Joe comic books thanks to you. Uh, <laughs> I'm about uh, 104 issues in to my. Are you really? Reading. Yeah. But what's interesting is I I had stopped reading after a point as a child. After about issue 50, it just you know I hit junior high and oh, I don't read comics anymore and and it moved on to baseball cards and oh, sports. I was at full full steam in, yeah. in junior high. Uh, um, I didn't, and so I'm re, I'm reading some of them for the first time. Yeah. It's at, at 37 years of age. I'm like, oh, please tell me more about Cobra Commander. Uh, so I'm having an interesting time. Um, where do you think the medium can go? Where, where do you, which where, medium? Uh, Comics or uh, podcasting? Podcasting. 
mm. podcasting could be uh, pretty. It's it's ultimate reality shows. You know, mm-hmm. ultimately mm-hmm. everybody could have a podcast. Almost everyone does. Yeah, <laughs> in in our community, yeah, everybody does. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and the good ones will rise to the top. And yeah, uh, that's my two thought. things will happen. Either the good ones will rise to the top, or the ones who are consistently there. Right. rise to the top and if right. you're out there every week every day regularly you'll you'll get your audience yeah and that's um that's what i've seen i i think the big if, if it can make that transition where it's easy to listen to in cars and, and it is okay you can you can grab an iphone and, and plug in right i know but it, but people don't think about that normally at least most of the people i know right um especially older generations you know um my car does not have a functioning radio in it believe it or not uh it's a it's a 2005 toyota camry and i never bothered to get the antenna hooked up right so i because and i live in la where terrestrial radio stinks on ice yeah uh i did have xm wired in for a while and then i got my iphone yeah and so now everything i listen to is is streamed the stream well but that's me. But, I'm, but, I'm weird. But but my point is the average person and just who's getting up, going to work, doesn't think, oh, let me plug in my, my, my MP3 iPhone. player or no. my iPhone to listen to a podcast. I think once you get to that point and when it's more readily available, uh, much like you're seeing with streaming with like Netflix and original programming coming through Netflix or Amazon or, or you can stream through a Roku box or something, that's changing the TV industry. I think the, the podcasting industry is, is big. It's giant, but it, uh, for the people who know it. Right. It's it's like the stand-up comedy industry. You know, yeah. you've got your, your Louis C.K.'s and you've got mm-hmm. your Carlin's, but then you've also got 100 million open micers out there. Yeah. And what I'd like to believe is podcasting is the waiting room for late night television or mm-hmm. NPR, mm-hmm. you know, it would be nice to see some of us graduate to a regular NPR show or yeah. uh, if radio uh, forces itself to reinvent itself, then guys like us yeah. will be on talking, of, you know, we'll be doing our podcast, but on the air and getting paid for it. Yeah. Do you think radio will ever come back in any kind of form? And that, what, what would have to happen? It will eventually hit critical mass. I mean, there will be a point yeah. where the listeners just aren't there. Yeah, literally. Yeah, literally it's not there. So it will not become viable as an advertising medium. Yeah. And then some guy in Chattanooga, Tennessee, or some guy in Dayton, Ohio, or mm-hmm. some guy in Columbia, Missouri, will experiment with a format. And yeah. it'll be Rick Sklar all over again. He'll just try mm-hmm. something new, uh, bringing in, you know... Uh, college kids to talk about something or uh you know guys like us or a bunch of comedians just to sit around a table and all of a sudden people go hey have you heard what these guys are doing over on fm 1089 you know in chattanooga chattanooga's finest fm yeah whatever it is and then and then that'll hit the press yeah and before you know it it'll be it'll be all over the country do you think when maybe the the leadership in radio starts to change, we're hitting that final push where the generations are, are switching? A lot of the old school radio guys are stuck in their ways. I I, I follow and read uh, uh, Lou's old program director John Gorman, who was at the he writes for FMQB, right? Yeah, John Gorman, uh, WMMS, and all the stuff, and he changed the way radio was done. And he is not one of those stuck in the. He is a you've got to adjust. Uh, yes, he is evolve, evolve and survive. And uh, fascinating to hear his take, and as he's just watching his industry, that he's one of the people that helped build it, 
watching it kind of fade away because these old uh, old guys up in these chairs ain't changing. They're doing the the closet radio, food court radio, as John Court calls it. It's not nothing's going to change until the money goes away, right? You know, same with TV same, and movies. Same yeah, thing yeah, yeah. With TV, and I mean, TV is just—it's an embedded part of American culture. Yeah, you could have, and they've pretty much proven this. That you, if NBC had a sixty-minute show where it was a, a, a single hand rolling dice on a table, right. people would watch that for an hour, right? Because it's just habit in America. <laughs> just hey, have you seen the dice show? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I have—I was looking. Last night, I was looking over, I have DirecTV, and I have like yeah. 500 channels. Me too, yeah. And it's all crap. Yeah. Every bit of it. I watched five of the channels. <laughs> right. TCM and Boomerang, you know, and the and the, uh, and the the Dodgers. Yeah, I watch MLB Network, HBO, uh, Channel 11, and FX maybe. Right. <laughs> TBS for Saturday, but I mean, Sunday baseball. I even watch my baseball on my iPad. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, like, like, I'll still watch the Cardinals yeah. on, on MLB TV. Outstanding. Because I can't get them on, no. on, on my television like I want to. Right. Um, I, I bought one of the first thousand Roku boxes. Yeah, yeah, think, you've been on that cusp, yeah. I think that's I think that's where ultimately where TV is, is headed and broadcast TV. Well, first of all, broadcast TV killed itself when it, it uh, went to the digital transition. Yeah. You know, and um, I had I had hope for HD radio when it came out. I actually yeah. own one. I don't know if you do. No, I don't. I don't know. Um, there, I mean, there are a couple of really interesting stations here in LA, like mm. alternate um, alternate stations, yeah, like sideband channels. But what that's done from a technical standpoint is it's squished the sound of the of the original channel mm-hmm. and uh, and and ruined the bandwidth there, so you you don't get quite as clear a signal because it's got to share its content with three other sounds, right? And uh, and HD radio did not take off for a number of reasons. I had hoped it would introduce some new formats, mm. but mm-hmm. with no one listening to those alternate stations, nothing. It's just not possible. Right. All of my radio listening is done on the iPhone through, well, uh, strangely enough, uh, iHeartRadio, which is a clear channel joint. Yeah. Or um, a, a thing called TuneIn Radio. Which you said, yeah. Which gets uh, which gets broadcast stations from around the world, but it also gets uh, internet stations. Right. So you're able to listen to pretty much whatever you want. If I want to listen to Jack Benny, I can do it right now. Uh, let's do it. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it's in the public domain. We can do it without <laughs> any trouble. Absolutely. Who does your, your theme song, by the way? Uh, that theme song is called The Majestic March of Tex Tunney. Uh, it's performed by the Brian Burroughs Band, uh, the Double B Band. is right. uh, one of my best friends out of Texas. Um, yeah, it's your wrestling theme music. It huh? is actually the theme song. My former, uh, he's he's no longer with us. Tex Tunney, my wrestling manager character that right. he used for three years. Yeah. Wow! So I figured I kind of, you know, I don't want to say own the rights because uh, Brian could still sue me, but uh, you know, I called him up and said, "Can I use this song?" He sent me a bunch of stuff. Good for him. Yeah, That's yeah. Really awesome. Records it in his house. There you go. All yeah. our music is public domain, so. Yeah. Guy, a guy records it in his house outside Dallas, Texas, sends it to me. It's on my uh, show and my wrestling shows here in California. Technology. Gotta love it. So what's his name again, and where can you hear his music? Because he'll probably appreciate that. Uh, well, Brian Burroughs, the, the Double B Band. I don't I don't uh, really think he has an outlet for it. He was this actually. 
Yeah, yeah, this is it. Uh, he was the keyboardist in my, f- uh, I want to say, famous video, The Dick Nixon. The Dick Nixon. Oh, he was the keyboardist. He was. The, that was his song. He wrote that. I came home and uh, you know uh, he was playing that song, and I just started dancing to it. And I said, "Let's set up a camera." And <laughs> I was wondering how that came. Yeah, about. and here, but here's here's the thing. It comes back to what you said, uh, full circle here. The reason I did it is I wanted to impress a girl who had just moved to Texas, who I'd been seeing. I was like, this will be funny. I'll edit it up here real quick on my VHS player, and I'll send it out to her in Texas. That's why I did it. Women drive everything creatively. Pretty much. They drive everything financially, too. I mean, true. I I wouldn't have the job I I have right now if I didn't have to provide. provide, And I wouldn't have a job at all if I didn't have to date. So... (laughs) I mean, think about it. Jeez. Ken, wait, men left to their own devices, we don't bathe. Right. You know, if you go off with a bunch of guys for a weekend. Yeah. Well, well I, I'm trying to, I was just at Comic-Con with Christian Harloff and Mark Ellis, and I think I took three showers a day because Comic-Con, you hit that floor once, you smell like uh, B.O. that isn't even yours See, and sweat and hot The dogs. last time I was at Comic-Con, I shared a hotel room with 13 guys. Get the No. It was awful. That's hard. That's my nightmare. Worse than the radio nightmares. It I was, wouldn't have gone. It was so. You know how much I love the comic book medium and yeah. how much I love that whole thing. Uh, in the middle of my second day, yeah. I looked at one of the the girls who was part of our entourage. I'm like, "Are you enjoying this?" She said, "No, I'd rather go home to my boyfriend." I said, "Oh, I'd rather go home too. Why don't we jump a cab and catch Amtrak and go home?" And we did. <laughs> I, I thirteen to a room. Get out of here. We. Uh, I had a tough time with two. I'm like, uh, I've gotten, you know, I've gone on trips and gotten my own hotel room paid extra out of pocket uh, on family trips or something like that. I, I like my space. <laughs> I like my space pr- pr- probably too much. One of the reasons I'm not married yet, I like my space. Well, there you go. If I'm home alone on a Friday night reading a comic book at 37 years of age while video game plays or a baseball game's on, I'm going, this is pretty good. You know, I have that life, Ken. I do really you? do. Just as soon as the comic book is over, yeah. I have to turn and look at her and go, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. And then I'm free to read another comic book. <laughs> that's a nice That's a nice trick, sir. It's, it's a nice, well, and, and it comes from the heart. It's true. Yeah, so. absolutely. No, you uh, you are a different man than when I knew you uh, three or four years ago. I have been involved in situations where I've had to go, I'm really enjoying my time with you. <laughs> This is a great relationship. Yeah. I'll sell all my comic books. Uh, actually. <laughs> that happened, right? Twice. Twice? I know about the big one. Oh, the big one? Yes. The big one, uh, well, now, the second time it didn't hurt so bad because mm. uh, everything has been replaced digitally. So it that right, doesn't matter. Right. But, yeah, the first time with the beta marriage, yeah, I got rid of uh, I got rid of everything. and uh, Because you had to or were asked to or felt it was right? You know, that's a whole other show where uh, I was involved in kind of a, a religious thing and okay. having uh, worldly possessions that caused me to take my eyes off of my object of worship, mm-hmm. which, given my religious status, yeah. you would think would be the Lord. Right. But it was actually the woman I married oh. who demanded that she be worshipped. Oh, so it wasn't the Lord that, that no. demanded. Well, she... the Lord was the persuasive tool that was used. Oh, I get it. But the you. actual motivating force oh, was you're no. not paying, you know you're not worshiping me, uh, the world's biggest narcissist. Oh, so, uh, give, so get rid of your comic get books. Get rid of get rid of your comic books. Get rid of your vinyl records. No, you yeah, that too. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, I mean, 
miss him. Uh, oh, man. Thank God. So you, you don't have that Flying Burrito Brothers album anymore, huh? No. No, but uh, she did uh, She did leave right about the time that Napster was invented. Oh, okay. Wow. So the Flying yeah. Burrito Brothers came right came a little bit closer. Came right back into your life. Yeah. And you're still collecting Oh, comics. immediately. First thing I did when she was like, I'm leaving... Okay, good. You get the cats. And the first thing I did was go into a record store and buy a stack of like 30 records. Man, you're on a spending spree. You don't even know. You don't even know. Some guys would go into a bar. You know what? Oh, my God. This is so cool. Um, uh, One of my post-divorce record buying sprees, I go into uh, the record exchange on Hampton Boulevard in St. Louis. And I'm going going through the racks, and I see this this record uh, that... Uh, it's obviously a used record, yeah. right? Because that's what they sold, and it has this uh, white grease pencil all over it. It was my grease pencil from the radio station with my notes as program director really? on what you should play and what you shouldn't play. And so I laid down three ninety nine <laughs> for Utopia's <laughs> Adventures in Oblivion. Three ninety nine. Yep. Four hundred buckaroos. No. Three dollars and ninety nine cents. Oh, three dollars. And I was going to say that. Well, from now on, tell a story that was four hundred. Okay, uh, I will tell you about the time that I bought J.F. Murphy and Salt's The Last Illusion for one hundred and seventy five dollars. Fair enough, sir. It's a fair enough. Have you heard that cut? No, I. Have I will not. send it to you tonight Please. after I get home. It is the most powerful. Uh, it's it's just an awesome song. It's wow. just an awesome awesome cut. That's great. I love that. I used to. I, I'm not as much into music as I used to be. I used to go. You know, if, you, if I walked past Amoeba Records right. uh, on there on Sunset, a hundred dollars. Hundred dollars out. If I went right in away. the store, hundred fifty. <laughs> like <laughs> the things would fly out the window. I'd be. Oh, I purchased this. Did you go in? No. No. But, but yeah, it just appeared. Oh, I don't man. know how it happened. I used to shop there. I'd go. This is uh, two thousand two, three, four. Probably the prime years. Um, I was writing for a, a website called tinymixtapes.com, mm-hmm. and I used to be a regular contributor for them. And um, uh, on all my works are in a collected book called uh, Tiny Mixtapes of the Soul, uh, available on Amazon, Kindle edition. Um, I'd go into Amoeba, and instead of uh, getting a, a bat or a case, I would just hold them on those little plastic, you know, uh, the, oh, C- the hangers, the CD the hangers, or in the hangers, and I'd hold them from one end. And if my arm started to hurt, I knew it was time to go. <laughs> and that was a very thought out. I needed if I can't hold the CDs in one hand, it's time for me to go. Yeah, because I would not have stopped. I remember the time I was. I thought to myself, you know, I don't have any Elton John in my collection. I need to stop. I need to stop. There's no reason for me to ever have Elton John in I, uh, my collection ever. I hit a point with music where uh, I was, again, writing for Tiny Mixtapes, and it was a very independent music online zine. And sometimes those those things can be too hip for themselves yeah. uh, and not and forget just to enjoy music. And so I was at the end of each year. I started writing in 02. At the end of each year, you had to, we ought to submit our albums of the year and you know the guys would submit 15 records that no one you know 14 people had heard right and i for one year all i could come up with was paul mccartney's latest and and neil diamonds wow ken his 05 his 05 album which was great so mccartney in 05 would have been Uh, it might be chaos and creation in the backyard one of those i can't remember it's around that era yeah, oh, that might. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah, that and, not uh, a bad album. Actually. No, not a bad album. And, and Neil Diamond's twelve songs, uh, which uh, what's the name? Rick Rubin produced. Yeah, spectacular album. Still one of my favorites. And but I remember I filled up my list and I was like, I think I need to stop writing for this website. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just gonna 
just going to enjoy music from now on. Yep. And buy and listen what I want to. Whether it's Katy Perry, I do own some Katy Perry songs, maybe two, or or you know my beloved Beatles, which I own everything I can get my hands on, and a lot more thanks to you. Yeah. Did you ever get through any of that stuff? Uh, I did. I did. And you know where I was last night. Uh, this this episode's going to be uh, aired a couple days from now. But last night, as of this recording, I was at uh, Starlight Bowl in Burbank watching Fab Four, the Beatles tribute band. How were they? That was spectacular. Good. I'm not going to lie. Got a little emotional. Uh, you can buy into it. They're yeah. so good. And from where I had good seats, but from where you're sitting, it, your brain kind of can't tell the difference. Now, they're pre, they're, are they exclusively pre-Rubber Soul? No, no. They went all the way from 64 to even uh, Imagine and stuff from 71. The, in costume? In costume, yeah. So they do costume changes. They do do costume changes. Because I saw 1964, mm-hmm. a, similar, a similar act. Yeah. Uh, at the Wentzward Playhouse in St. Louis, and they are they're exclusively like before Help, right? Gotcha. So it's Help all the way back to Hamburg, and they're in the suits and you yeah. know the the malt tops. And after like two or three beers, my vision's not that good anyway. Yeah. Um, and they're and they're you know it's they're using rebuilt Vox amps and yeah. and Ludwig guitars and everything, and it's in a rotating stage, and they tore it up. They were great. Well, when, I, when I was invited, it was for a friend's birthday. And, yeah. you know, as you know, I'm a giant Beatles fan, giant Beatles fan. When I was invited, I thought, eh, all right. Just because you're a big Beatles fan and we're, we're me and my friend Alex, we're long, for 10 years we know each other. And Beatles was our connecting thread. And he invited me. So, yeah, I'll go. I'll go. Sure. You know, I'm kind of kind of cheeky and whatever. I'm telling you, by the end of the night, those were the Beatles. It, could, it was the Beatles. you got to love it. And I had a great time. And uh, when the jo- guy doing George Harrison broke into uh, uh, Here Comes the Sun, I, you know, George is my Beatle. I got a little emotional. Got to say. And they're wow. so good at it. So I had a good time. I had a good time. I'm going to see them based on your recommendation. Yeah, yeah I totally recommend You know what's they're in Vegas. hard? They're based in Vegas. Yeah. Is being a music snob and loving that TV show that I love so much. Which one? The Monkees. Oh yeah, they have no musical credibility among the snobbery. Yeah, at all. Uh, isn't that starting to change a little bit? Right, as time passes. As but... time passes, but I mean, even in in the eighties when they were in their their twentieth anniversary tour, and you know they were still a punchline. Yeah, and they're all they're kind of still a punchline. Yeah, but uh, I'm telling you. But you're a monkey's fan. I know it. it. It's some of it holds up, man. Yeah, some of it holds up, and they're uh, they're selling tickets now. They're yeah. touring as a threesome now and, right. and selling out. So. That's great. Catching the vibe of the past. And that's kind of what we did here on this episode of the Knapsack Files. Tim, it's so great to have you come Glad come to by. be here, buddy. I, I will yeah. gladly do this again anytime you like. Yeah. And uh, if our uh, if our other secret project takes off, yeah. I will be uh, even happier than I am right yeah. now. We are not done uh, working uh, on the airwaves together. And uh, thanks for sharing about your depression, your wife's sandwich-making ability. And, they're they're uh, unrelated, by the way. And a, uh, and a, <laughs> My first wife's sandwich-making was probably the cause of Depression. And a journey through radio and inside the comedy mind. Uh, you can find the Knapsack Files on iTunes. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. We're also on Stitcher. Find us on Facebook. TheFandomPlanet.com. TheFandomPlanet.com. That's right. And uh, you can also follow Fandom Planet on, on Twitter, right? Fandom Planet yeah, is on Twitter. At Fandom Planet. You're on Twitter as well? Yeah. Not Tim, a lot. Tim is funny. I'm not on there that much. You should and be I am on there more. not on Facebook at all. Yeah, which is frustrating when you're trying to contact Sorry, you. man. Married men have no business on Facebook. <laughs> 
probably <laughs> probably right. You can find me on Twitter as well, Cospan, K-O-Z-P-A-N. Don't forget to follow Schmoes Know as well and see us uh, every week on Toad Hop Network. And, of course, you can catch Encore presentations of the Knapsack Files every Thursday, 10 o'clock on the Toad Hop Network. Go to toadhopnetwork.com. You'll see my pretty face up on that lineup now. So, for Tim Powers, I'm Ken Knapsack. This is another edition of the Knapsack Files. We'll see you next time. Can I stop jerking it now?